man. Hey, here we are. Here we are, man. God, Batman, oh. it's so good to see you on a computer screen. I know, I know. I gotta say, man, I'm. Uh, are we over the zoomies? Are we ready for in person again? Are we ready? I'm ready for everything in person. I'm like, I, last week I was like, oh, I'm so ready for the season to start. Like, I'm rip roaring, ready to go. That is true, but I have a real wistfulness. Like, I feel like I'm trying to squeeze in all the last bits of summer I can over the next seven and a half, eight days. I know. I mean, it's that kind of late August feeling when you're ready to go back to work, but also the tomatoes are still fucking crushing it. They're banging. They're so good. I had a burrata last night at a great little pizzeria, High Falls. Shout out to Ollie's. Love Ollie's oh, High okay. Falls. It was quite the scene. I like the upstate food reports. Uh, <laughs> do you? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, I'm never going to go to any of those places, but it's not. I'm like I say about many things. I'm so happy that they're happening in the world. Mm. Um, you know, speaking of tomatoes, I've been on that gazpacho kick that we that we spoke of. You know, uh, dating back to to the freeze New York at uh, at the wonderful. You really thread the needle there, there. Didn't you? You really thread the needle there. Yeah, yeah I really yeah. do. So um, gazpacho, gazpacho is is fucking banging, as as we've discussed. Tell me what. Well, but, and then I was in too. Spain and Menorca mm-hmm. for the Hauser yep. thing, and I I had like a gazpacho that. So I think I've really perfected a recipe. I'd like to have a gazpacho off with any listener that wants to come in. Wow, it's really just about it's really just about the best tomatoes and the best olive oil you can possibly get in a fork. Exactly, blending them and putting them through a sieve. Mm-hmm. The most important thing is to put it through the sieve, get the fucking seeds mm-hmm. and the skin out, mm-hmm. and it's just this pure essence of absolute summer. Um, really all about it recently. I think you're pretty close to some pretty banging tomatoes uh maybe not on sag harbor but possibly the islands near it there's an island shelter island very close to you that has some some great farms if i recall well no we've we've we have great farms here in the south Mm, that's true of course uh you know um yeah i just i just picked up some today and speaking of pizzerias i've got the reason i was late to get onto this little collie call is that i've got like seven people coming over for children plus children seven people plus children coming over for dinner and i have like 12 or 15 balls of pizza dough in different stages of fermentation wow. I'm ready to fire up the fire up the oven and try and crank them up like a lot of pressures on me a lot of anxiety um but i got a break from cooking yesterday we took a little boat ride with friend of the pod meredith darrow mm. and her family and my family and we zipped up through gardener's bay past the aforementioned sheltered island up to the north fork to visit some friends Amazing. from the art trade and uh, and link in with them it was a pretty awesome, uh, although kid-heavy celebration. But the guy who cooked, man, just knocked it out of the park, and he was ably assisted by Jose Martos, Ooh. who had who had linked in, and uh, and they they banged out some vongole, mm. some local uh, scallop ceviche, which was just love crushed it, love it. it. And then to talk about tomatoes, a tomato salad with lobster meat. Wow, that is instead of mozzarella, Ooh. it really was uh, out of control. Love a, a little lobster caprese. I love it. Yeah, love it. yeah. And then uh, hot dogs for the kids. Uh, a good time was had by mm-hmm. all. Uh, Jose was talking about his uh, his archery skills, which is uh, links in with the past guest Mark Glimsher. Honestly, that's just terrifying. And, uh, I, I, yeah, yeah. And it was a really it was a really nice afternoon. Took the boat back. It's awesome open air, like nineteen forties kind of vessel. Is Jose uh, going like to just shoot me lunch. with an arrow the next time I don't go to his opening? Um. I'm not sure if he has enough arrows for all the people that are missing those, but Noted. absolutely love that guy, you know, and he he's someone that has like the herring market on lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, super, super smart and fun guy. And, uh, you know, took the boat back, jumped off the boat a few times, threw my kid off the boat for the first time. Great. Um, I'm sure that scarred him a little bit. So we'll be talking about that in therapy in five to 10 it's years. Okay. They got another way around a boat. Yeah, that's kind of what was my mm-hmm. feeling. 
It's it's just necessary. I feel like you, Benjamin, you know your way around a boat. You know what? I'm a better passenger and mate than I am a captain. Mm, got it. I can't really sail, but I can. I, if someone points out the line, tells me to pull it in which way, great Love at that. It. Like I take direction. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, this guy who's an artist and art world adjacent, Aubrey Mayer's name came out because a number of years ago, those of us who had been hanging out in the North Fork about a decade ago. I know ago, Aubrey. I think Aubrey is a friend he, of the pod. Yeah, I think he's a friend of the pod. Great photographer. He's done a lot of studio photographs of people like Jonas mm-hmm. Wood. And about 10 years ago, he was he was teaching. He was running the sailing camp at the uh, Orient Yacht Club. Mm-hmm. And uh, every Wednesday, he would take a bunch of us out. And he was like a he had been basically kicked off the Olympic sailing team was the story I got uh, for, for behavioral issues. But he was a great sailor. He takes out, we'd race all these big boats. We'd be crushing some beers, uh, maybe some flammables, and uh, and just have a good old time. But I just heard that his he now is a high school uh, sailing coach and just won the national championships like two years in so a row. So sick. Shout out to Aubrey. Keep on winning. Shout out to Aubrey. Keep on winning. What else? What are you up to, Nate Freeman? Um, you're in, you're, it looks like you're in New York City. Brief, I don't hear any babies or any puppies. Briefly touching down on the island of Manhattan just to Lincoln build. You know, I need I need to get back in work mode very very gradually. So just a few hours here. In well, yeah, fresh on the success New of Amsterdam. your of the article we mentioned last week. You you want to build on that? When are you back to? Uh, I don't want to. No pressure. I think <laughs> you should take all the time you need. I think paternity leaves are underutilized in America as our maternity leaves since we don't give them to anyone. But uh, when are you planning? What month are you planning to reintroduce your weekly or somewhat weekly column to the Vanity Fair website? It's going to be back in late September. I'm going to ease my way off paternity leave into the workforce uh, after Labor Day because there's just so much going on. But uh, you can't you can't not. I mean, I think physically it would be you would be it would be hard to keep you repressed. Yeah, I know. But at the same time, it's going to be a gradual thing. So no column until later in September. But it shall be yeah. back. And I, I I meant to lead off with this. You know, we're, we're going to keep this intro pretty brief, even though we've been blathering on, because I sat down earlier in the week with gallerist David Kordansky and one of his gallery artists, Joel Messler, who had been a past guest. And we have an amazing conversation coming mm-hmm. up, like a 40 minute conversation about the origins and a really brief but important two-year history of Chinatown in Los Angeles and the genesis of a lot of artist careers and galleries that, that grew out of that very um, fertile soil. Yep. Um, a lot. And uh, they like they, they have some stories, a great recontouring, but really a great linking, and they have an interesting relationship because they were friendly friends on and mm-hmm. off. Joel was Dave's uh, landlord, actually, in Dave's first gallery space. Uh, and now, you know, 15, almost 20, 20 years later, actually, uh, Dave is representing him and, and some really interesting insight into Joel's work that I think people will be interested to hear ahead of Joel's. Uh, he's got a big uh, show coming up. He's got a bunch of paintings that will be at Free's Soul mm-hmm. and then has a big show coming up at a museum in China, which name escapes me. Oh, uh, yeah. Museum and museum in quotations. So stay tuned for really just a conversation with the two of the greatest. They're the nucleus. So what else? What else was what else is going on? I mean, the the big news in the that was blowing up my text messages is uh, the announcement of Paul Allen's mm-hmm. uh, art collection, uh, the the dearly departed Paul Allen's art collection, going up on the block uh, all in one go. It seems mm-hmm. like at the Christie's auction house. What do we know about this? One hundred fifty works are coming up in November. The estimate for the estate is a uh, billion dollars. Doctor, I'm sorry, that's a billion with a b b b b. That is correct, a billion with a b, making it the largest estate ever auctioned. Uh, there are some, you know, really incredible stuff in there. It spans 500 years. You know, I think from Botticelli to Hockney. Uh, I mean, Paul Allen. I, I briefly dove into some interviews when this news broke. He was a real 
uh, uh, you know, patron of the arts of, with a voracious appetite. He just loved art so much, uh, very, very, you know, earnestly. Uh, he started the Seattle Art Fair in order to bring, you know, uh, art to the city of grunge. <laughs> yeah, and you know he's he's you know he's an art fan. But he's also a a just a a, a material culture fan. Because didn't he also start the what started out as the Experience Music Project mm-hmm. and then later became the Pop uh, Culture Museum or something like that up in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, I mean I think that once he he left Microsoft because of the, his uh, lymphoma diagnosis, I think it was Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, you know he he just devoted himself to other passions. You know, he owned a bunch of sports teams and, you know, was very involved in culture. Yeah, I mean, a, a very cool collection, definitely a trophy collection. He wasn't someone that was afraid of trading this art either. He definitely bought and sold some things uh, for, for nice uh, profits during his lifetime. Mm-hmm. And it's cool that it is a collection that does, as you said, span 500 years. It's got old masters up through uh, the late 20th century. I'm not sure if there's any 21st century stuff in it. It's definitely something of a trophy mm-hmm. hunter, like you know, um, which I which I'm a fan of. I love it. Yep, he spent uh, um, eighty mil on a Monet a few years ago, so he was pretty active, you know, up yeah, until the end. Yeah, but you know, I I read the the two direct articles, both in the Journal and the Times. I'm not sure if there was an art newspaper or report. I didn't see it. Really light on the details. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems like it was basically a reprinting of the press release uh, from Christie's, in that it didn't mention if these will be. A full standalone sale, and they'll get rid of all of it in the month of November. Mm. That's a lot of material to flood the market. It does seem like they'll be standalone, but I'm sure there are some minor things that might not fit mm-hmm. into that. Uh, I'm not sure if they'll do a day and evening session, but in any case, a lot of unanswered questions in terms of the strategy mm-hmm. there. Uh, and there was zero reporting on how competitive this was. I'm sure there was a competitive process between the two or three auction houses mm-hmm. in order to secure this consignment and what sort of financial guarantees, if any. I can't imagine that uh, the executors of his estate uh, would have a fiduciary responsibility to take a guarantee on this, I would think. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine why they wouldn't, but I'm really interested to see how competitive it was and how thin the profit margins potentially will be for Christie's, mm-hmm. uh, even if they do a really great job selling through this gear um, because of what they had to, to pony up to secure it. Right. Well, if we look back on Maclow, and this is not really that informed, but I believe that the guarantee there was around 650 to 700 and, and it exceeded 900 uh, So Sotheby's did okay on that. I can't imagine that the margins would be that different here right wouldn't it be somewhere in the 800 range maybe i would think so i think it would have to be in order to secure it i wonder if they actually had to go higher or what sort Mm -hmm. of you know um if they had to give up any of their hammer in addition to the guarantee potentially or if their performance you know sometimes now you can i mean you can do any number of things but there can be performance incentives where they claw back some of that hammer by selling through at a high Mm -hmm. rate um, but it's, you know, it's, you know, anytime auction houses go after these really big things, they actually end up getting quite skinny because it's a, it's a little bit of, um, you know, it's a little bit of a prestige game as well right. and, and bringing people in through the door. Um, and I, I have to say, I'm concerned most of this art is at a, a super high level, oh, um, yeah. you know, a lot of, of eight and nine figure or eight, eight figure paintings will be up. And I think at least one painting that will have an estimate at the high level that would, would stretch towards nine figures, I would think. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what that would be. I know there's some Van Gogh. There's, um, yeah, you know. and, and then there's one thing that, that could certainly, certainly, there's certainly be $50 million mm-hmm. um, for a work. I'm, I don't have my notes in front of me, but uh, I am a little bit concerned. We have uh, Jerome Powell today basically hammering the market yeah. saying, 
listen, inflation is not under control. We're going to keep hammering these interest rates up. You know, might even be uh, another three quarter basis point or half basis point rise in interest rates going forward at the next meeting of the Fed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have an election coming up. There's still a war going on in Russia, and and you think things are, are bad here. I mean, in Europe, we're talking about like close to twenty percent uh, uh, inflation possible in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're saying based on the rise in energy prices uh, due almost directly to that war. So there's a lot of global uncertainty uh, right now as we go into the fall in the financial markets. Um, and I think people feel a little uncertain. I think sure. people are a little bit kind of wait and see. So that you know, it it does. It, I think there is a fair amount of risk in selling this type of work now. Now, the other side of that is that you know, there's always someone on the other side of the trade. I Meaning, there's always going to be people making money in the market, and many of these works, if not most of them, <clears throat> can be seen as once in a lifetime opportunities. Right to acquire the the very best of breed for certain artists that have a, a very limited amount of work uh, floating freely, freely in the free market. But uh, it's not, I wouldn't say, a totally a slam dunk in this current uh, macroeconomic environment. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this remains to be seen. And like you said, these are, you know, once-in-a-lifetime trophies that may be somewhat immune from market forces, war, elections, whatnot. But, you know... I think we saw that affect the sales in May somewhat. There's no reason to think that it, the November sales wouldn't be affected. Yeah, and well. I wonder how much. And I wonder how much that affected how competitive the process was for Christie's and winning mm-hmm. this. I wonder if you know Sotheby's, which has an ownership structure that you know is historically, at least in other industries, they've been in known for not being into huge investments of capital. I wonder if they either sat it out or lowballed it, allowing Christie's to walk. Very out. possible. Ab- absolute, absolute conjecture on my part, but something I would love to. We know. are. Uh, a bit late on details right now. The news just broke uh, hours ago. I'm sure that intrepid reporters like my, myself uh, will find out more. In, in, okay, in I don't mean to company. step on the toes of any of your reporting. <laughs> no, no. I'm on leave, man. This is, this, okay, this, hopefully I at least gave you some questions that I would like you to answer right. in forthcoming columns or on this podcast. Because mm-hmm. Lord knows, I mean, I'll be gossiping with people on the phone, but I'm not actually going to call anyone that knows yeah. and, and try and press them for information. Um other things in the art world, pretty light out there still. I mean, I'm getting tons of emails, obviously, with dinner invites mm-hmm. and uh, previews. Yeah, um, so I September can't... 7th, 8th, 9th in particular seem real chock of luck, real crazy. Lots of... Lots of ter- double and triple booking. I wish that congest- congestion pricing would have been affected by then because traffic is going to be insane. Mm-hmm. It seemed like this is going to be the first fall in three years where everyone is, quote unquote, back to school across all industries. Yep. A lot of people back in the office at least three days mm-hmm. a week. All the benefits, all the social engagements, the ballet, the symphony, the gallery openings, all of it going to be happening uh, in September and October up and up until Thanksgiving, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, get, getting from east to west and north to south is going to be it's going to be tricky. It's going to be. Uh, and I know you're a man who likes to sometimes triple and, and certainly on occasion quadruple book. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge. I do like to go from the Upper East Side to Dime Square on occasion. And just 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 do the full gamut. Speaking of uh, speaking of entertaining and dinners, um, the, I caught this great, interesting read in Eater Los Angeles, a really deep dive investigation of uh, of an issue they had with. Uh, it looks like, and this is a, an art world adjacent. Mm-hmm. I would say even almost affiliated restaurant in LA. Um, I know you're a big fan of it. Mm-hmm. I think it's even popped up in some of your reporting. It has. And uh, it seems like the uh, the restaurant tour Ken Freeman the um, 
His, was he officially Me Too'd? Yeah, the Me Too'd restaurateur, Ken yeah, Freeman. Yeah, that's fair to say. Uh, it seems like he was trying to, it, it looks like he gave some free advice to the folks that opened horses, you know, just some ideas. And uh, based on text messages that Eater LA published, looks like he was trying to claw like 20% of their business from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a pretty explosive story. Uh, but yes, the restaurant is horses. I have written about it extensively. It's a, a, a pretty fabulous sceny restaurant in Hollywood that became the go to place for galleries and, and collectors during freeze la uh but yeah it seems that that ken you know thought that he had a 20 percent ownership stake in this restaurant the other owners just said straight up this is not true this guy had nothing to do with it i mean as someone who's gotten in trouble for basically bullying mm-hmm. uh it's, he comes across as a really big bully yeah. in these text messages to me i i mean it's astounding to me that he provided them to the the reporter because he just comes. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't make him look no, good. No, it really at doesn't. All. Like you know, if you have a case, take it to court. I don't think this was it for, especially with his public profile over the past five years or whatever. Uh, trying to try the case in the court of public opinion was not going to work out well for him. I wouldn't think. I think that he was trying to attempt some kind of a comeback. I think he started trying to reopen the spotted pig. It obviously didn't work out. There was talk of him being... Hey, news, news flash. Never mind the rampant sexual harassment and, and even rape. The Spotted Pig kind of sucked. Yeah, it did. And it, it would be very out of fashion right now. That's not the way that people want to eat right now. No, not at no. all. Um, but speaking of what people do want to eat, um, the horse's crew, I believe, aren't they gearing up for a big opening in New York at some point in this quarter? They are. They are. They're opening in the old Chumley space in the West Village. I don't usually make my way over to the, the West Side. But I certainly will when they open what is going to be called Froggies in the Chumley space. Uh, um, I mean, that's an amazing space. Did you ever, was that before your time in New York? Or were you able to catch a couple of Chumley's nights in your early years? You know, it was right before my time. When I came here in 2008, it had just shut down because a wall collapsed or something. But I do recall very uh, clearly my father was a habitué of Chumley's back in the day. And oh, would really? always tell me to go there and I would have to remind him that it was no longer open. <laughs> Nate, I, I say this not to make you sad, uh, but just to really acknowledge it. You would have loved Chumley's. I know. No, no, no I, I, I've been told. But that's why I'm, I'm holding on to the hope that maybe my dear friends, Liz and Will at Horses, can bring back some of that magic with Froggies. I think maybe we should get them on the pod in association with the opening of Froggies. Oh, yeah. I think that would be a great, great idea. idea. I would love to chat oh, yeah. with those they're, guys. They're, they're real, real brilliant crew guys. And briefly, before we get to Mr. Kordansky and Mr. Messler, uh, uh, the 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 hippest uh, publicist in Manhattan, uh, the the Doyen of Lucien, uh, I mean, other, among other establishments, Montana's own Caitlin mm-hmm. Phillips has quite a profile coming up in the Sunday's Times. I'd be very, su- I believe, in the style I'd section. Be very surprised if anyone listening to this podcast has not read it yet. Uh, it was. <laughs> yeah, in fact, just turn it off right now because stop listening. You have no business. Uh, but yeah, quite the entertaining read. Everything you could want out of a profile of Caitlin, I think. I meant to have it up as we talked about it, but I, perhaps Ben Smith, I'm not sure what he's best at, but perhaps it's given quotes, and his quote was absolutely incredible. What a dream. Um, Who wouldn't want to be yeah. compared to Ariana Huffington, Al Sharpton, and Donald Trump? Yeah, we'll leave it there. Everyone should read it. I don't have much to add. The article does what it does um, pretty, pretty well. And uh, that's it. Did you have anything else that we, we forgot? Let's get to Dave and Joel. Yeah, to, uh, hold on. It's a long one, uh, but they have some amazing stories, and they're both uh, they're both pretty, pretty amusing. So I think you'll like it. Check it out. Coming up right after after this. this. Welcome back to Nota Bene. 
I'm very pleased and honored to be joined by two very good friends uh, and remarkable people within this world of art, gallerist David Kordansky and artist Joel Messler. Uh, Joel not only shows in Dave's gallery, but they have a long-standing history dating back to the early days of Chongqing and the Chinatown Los Angeles art scene. So I thought we'd get together and I really want to hear a bit about that early history that was so important to the rise and kind of the, the post-Paul McCarthy generation of artists in Los Angeles that have risen and kind of taken over and become so important in the global art world over the past 10 to 15 years. So welcome, Joel. Welcome, Dave. What's going on, guys? Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having us, Ben. Um, beautiful day, by the way. Beautiful. Um, oh, so you were saying, Joel... That yeah, that 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 sort of that middle moment in Chinatown when G and K opened. Remember, that was the first name of of the gallery I opened with Ivan. Right. Um. I was in graduate school. I was at Cal Arts, getting my MFA. You had just graduated, right? Yeah. And you were but, doing a performance at Acme Gallery. Yeah. Where yeah. there was a guitarist, a heavy I vividly metal guitarist. Rem- yeah. remember this performance, and you invited me to this performance. Around, around what year is this? Like oh, th- two oh three, two thousand, two thousand and one or two. What year did you graduate? Two th- so I graduated from Cal Arts in o two. Opened the gallery October twenty third, two thousand three, two thousand three. Yeah. So immediately after graduate school. Because um, that was kind of the renaissance of... So I was saying, before we pressed record, um, hello everybody out there in Notabene world, uh, that there was, for me, there was like three phases of Chinatown that I w- was part of. There was like... But when Dave opened in 2003, that was kind of like this renaissance. It was like the second real kind of renaissance it was like the commercialization of chinatown i i would i would i would say it was more the professionalization yes yes of of chinatown right um where real art world members who came to buy art really schlepped down east of the 110 and came looking for art looked for artists to discover Right, because before um, before that point, most Los Angeles collectors, this is while I was in graduate school, by the way, but most LA collectors didn't pass Highland. It's true, yes. You know, if, if they were looking for art, there was no way they were going to pass Highland. And I mean, I remember like pre your gallery in the days of when it was just... Black Dragon Society and China Art Objects, Giovanni Intra, mm-hmm. used to go to LACMA, all the way to LACMA, to sell his artists like John Polipchek drawings, and he would take them in his backpack, and he would stand in line at LACMA to go see the shows, and that's where he would expose a lot of his artists, because it's true, people wouldn't go east of Highland. So it really wasn't until the birth of like galleries like you and Javier and Dan Hoog and all this new wave of galleries, like there was talk of Tim and Jeff from Blumpo moving in, that this new wave of professionalism that came to Chinatown, that people really started to come to Chinatown for the first time. So you were in graduate school as an artist 
practicing yeah. primarily in performance yeah. art, right? Um, I was a sculptor in doing performance uh, simultaneously, and I worked in a collaborative with a, with another student at CalArts. Um, and we were curating uh, the summer of 2002, um, the summer after I graduated, um, we were curating exhibitions and I was sort of, I, I loved being a kind of orator and spokesperson for the artists that we were showing in these exhibitions and um, sort of had the idea that I would open a gallery. And was that really that innocent? I, I wanted to, I, it was almost like I enjoyed speaking about my artist's work and the artists that I was showing in these exhibitions more than the process of making art. And, you know, that's a very kind of like post-studio CalArts kind of notion in a way. Like, well, why make when we can just conjure ideas and talk? I mean, the crit as the as the mm. as the end all be all, right? And yeah, being able to yeah. talk about and question things. Yeah, which starts with Baldessari, and you know, um, and then of course, you know, Michael Asher sort of it's the post studio um, crit class that was on Fridays uh, at at CalArts. It was you know sometimes anywhere from two hours to uh, 11 hours uh, hyper rigorous. And it was uh, one of those classes where kids would leave crying or, or questioning, you know, having these uh, kind of existential crises, questioning whether or not they were artists, wh whether or not they wanted to be artists or, or if perhaps being a dentist was a better option, you know, um, this is the kind of, this was the kind of um, experience that I that I had, and um, you know, for me, the thing that I never really could wrap my head around was this idea of paying all of this money to go to the storied institution, where they're basically asking you to ask yourself if you even wanted to be a producer of things, if you even wanted to be to borrow a, a, a term from the, the, the young British artists, you know, a cultural producer. Um, why, why pay all this money to go to a school to then leave with this question of why did I go to school? And, and, you know, and so for me, um, opening a gallery was like, conflating the best of both worlds. It was taking the sort of critical space that I really appreciated that was so kind of heavy and, and the sort of dogma of CalArts. Um, but also simultaneously pay, pay myself back for, you know, the tuition yeah. to go there. Um, and Joel spoke to the fact that your wave of people opening spaces was a professionalization of what was happening in Chinatown. Just briefly, Joel, can you sketch out what Chinatown was like just immediately preceding this, just to kind of set the stage that Dave and his gallery then opened within? 
Yes. Yeah, so J- just real quick, can I just say that what's really funny though is we're basically t- only talking about what a six-year period. Yeah. So two, two, and two. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, it really is a short period of time, and uh, so much happened, and especially as a young person, and during that time. That was like the whole world. I thought we had made history. I was like, well, now I could just retire. I have like a couple shekels in my pocket and now I could just like live in a cabin in the woods or something. And uh, I made the, I was part of a history, but it turns out like uh, there's a whole big life to live post that. But uh, I moved to Chinatown and uh, the, like then in 1999 and uh, there was China Art Objects and Black Dragon Society. And I opened Diane Proust when Enmo opened. And so at that point, there were four galleries on that road. And China Art Objects, it was started by four people, but it was run primarily by Steve Hansen, Giovanni Intra. And uh, lots of weird things happened in that time. And I don't want to get too far into the weeds, although there's a lot of amazing stuff there's a, se- there's a series of, of articles you wrote that people can google up if they want to get into the nitty-gritty oh yeah there's also some aspects that are just like deeply embedded within the substrata of that history that are perhaps too e- emotional to unearth really it was you know? But I, I, I can say though that during this time there was a lot of it felt like this uh, Chinatown was like a pedestrian walkway, and it was almost like an a or chunking road, chunking road, and yeah, and across the street where Hop Louis was, and and Jorge Pardo had a studio. It was almost like a playground, a little bit, and it was it was little lawless. Uh, Chinatown had its own security. The LAPD didn't come, and when they did come, they drank at Hop Louis. So we were friendly with the LAPD and the sheriff. So it was a very like protected area. So there was lots of uh, uh, I hopefully none of my life insurance policy people are hearing this, but there's a lot of drug use and a lot of booze and a lot of uh, late night shenanigans. Yeah, and just for those that are tuning that don't understand the geography, Chinatown in Los Angeles is is a, a kind of a simulacrum. It's you know it's these faux Chinese buildings, and it's it's proximate to downtown, but because of the way the streets are laid out and the highways have been plopped in there, it's sort of ghettoized and set aside. You can't really walk from there to anywhere else. It's very much a neighborhood uh, within and without um, that's kind of encircled by by cars and sort of it's, its own little bubble of a space. And while it's only like probably three quarters of a mile from yeah. where Mocha Museum of Contemporary Art, at least the Geffen is, it's a it's a world away at the same time. So it made sense sort of to begin to open galleries there, but it's also like, I mean, if you feel like you're in a film set or I mean, I haven't been there yeah. 10 years, but it has this very, uh, you know, it, it surreal was certainly, feeling. It was certainly... Um, a space in which to invent yeah. a community. Yeah. And, and, and at this point, it really felt like it was artist-driven. Like I said, like the, the dealers that were there were... Uh, Deeply rooted in, in the, the... I mean, this is really important. The, the gallerists were mostly deeply rooted in the MFA system, uh-huh. whether it be... LA or I think Joel you were coming from 
I came from San Francisco, but like Black Dragon Society was started by Roger Herman, who, who was were a teaching at UCLA. At UCLA. Yeah. And Steve Hansen was at Art Center. Uh, and, you know, uh, Pei White and Jorge Pardo, who was very connected with that gallery, very Art Center. So it was, yeah, it was very. Well, I mean, not to get on a tangent, but I think, you know, when people talk about the rise of Los Angeles as an Art Center, they often talk about space and the ability for artists to have space. But I think it's really about those graduate programs that yeah. were so yeah, much yeah, yeah, in yeah. the DNA of people coming out of them who stuck around and, 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 and not, it, and, well, 110%. It, it starts. You know, in a way, like the f- arguably, from my perspective, the formative period of LA art as we know it today starts in early nineteen ninety in the early nineteen nineties with you know Mocha and exhibitions like Helter Skelter. Um, but there's a there's a history that's not really addressed which is the, the moment where CalArts, as this historical MFA, the, this historical institution takes a back seat to schools like UCLA and Art Center. All of a sudden, Mike Kelly, graduate of CalArts, is teaching in the, at, in the Art Center MFA program. Christopher Williams, Richard Hawkins, Anne Goldstein, a curator at MOCA. These are your professors at Art Center. At UCLA, you have Paul McCarthy. You have Chris Burden. You have Charlie Ray. These are your professors. You know, a cast of some of the most important LA forebears to ever make art. And, you know, at UCLA, you know, tr- you basically go in as an artist. You know, they almost they almost deemed it a finishing school. Where at Cal Arts, it was like, you know, there's this this notion of breaking the individual down um, through this very complex uh, sort of conceptual post structuralist kind of. Uh, you know, dogma. Yeah, yeah, it's yeshiva like, and it's yeah, um, and 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 then art center. You know where, you know, you have people. You you have a, a whole crew of, of of individuals like Jorge Pardo and, um, yeah, Sharon Lockhart. Oh and yeah. Pay White and Francis Stark and Julie Becker. Yeah, so like, you have these sort of like pods of of uh artists that that came out of these uh these mfa programs in the late 1990s and there's a real shift away from cal arts um and that's why it was such that's why it was actually such an incredible opportunity for me to open the gallery because the cal arts students that were 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 graduating weren't getting represented you know, Mark Fox, Richard Tayas, China Art Objects, yeah. sort of the quote-unquote hot galleries in L.A., they really weren't looking to Cal Arts. It was really all about UCLA, Edgar Bryan, uh, um, oh, Sandeep and, and Mungo oh, yeah. going to uh, Margot Levin and another storied L.A. gallerist and institution, you know? So it was... Um, this was sort of the beginning of the professionalization of the LA art world. Um, 
And in that context, in 03, you, who have met Joel, come into Chinatown and open the first outpost of David Kornansky. Was that the first name, or you had a partner? No, it was G&K Gallery. And um, a year, roughly a year later, um, we we disbanded and, and became um, DKG. But... Uh, I think it's important to acknowledge also that Joel Messler was my landlord. Yeah, so I was going to say, like, right before this happened, there was, uh, during this this time, there was a very, like, dark period in Chinatown. And, and uh, right around this time, Giovanni Intra passed away in New York City. And I, I was not there... Um, I was not physically in the space where he where he had passed, but I was in New York City uh, assisting the artist Eric Wesley with his first uh, solo exhibition at Metro Pictures. Um, yeah, and I'll never forget yeah. the sort of uh, the 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 drama that yeah. ensued uh, the morning after Giovanni. Past. and how it how the news got back to LA and Chinatown but and so there's a series of very dark things that happened within the community there and and I remember you know it was like this is it the Chinatown's over uh we should you know uh we should all I don't remember like going hiding or uh, like what what the hell were we gonna do we had nothing we had nowhere else to go or nowhere else to be or nothing else to do really but uh at, at this point, um, I, I, uh, uh, us, us, uh, Jewish m- people, uh, anytime the local landowners, the building owners wanted artists to, uh, convert their buildings into studios, uh, because I spent a lot of times in the bars, uh, which were near the Mahjong parlors, they would come to me, uh, maybe they thought I was like the spearheaded round eye and to do these buildings. And so this one building, um, it was a building too large for me to do on my own. And so I, um, called up a friend of mine who I recently got together with, who I knew wanted to open a, a gallery, Daniel Hoog, uh, very, very interesting fellow who is now a director of art Cologne and the grandson of, uh, oh, whole yeah. yeah. Um, very, very interesting dear friend of, of all of ours really yeah, I love I love Dan I mean what a Dan what a, is a you know he's very kind of uh, gregarious presence mm-hmm. but also like ultra sensitive and yeah. you know looking back on my relationship with with Dan um I have to say, like, there's a part of me that feels incredibly indebted to him, and um, and me. I am very grateful to him. Yeah, like what I, he taught me, and and also just um, you know, I look back on, on, on those days, and I, I literally can visualize him up on a ladder, mm-hmm. bu- building, yep, building. Um, my first gallery and and you know there was a lot of youthful drama and you know s- silly um uh, you know competition i think in uh, Dave competition and Dan in the egged each other on quite a bit 
we egged each other on and and but in 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 looking back on on my relationship with him like i love him so much and i owe him a, a you know a great deal for the opportunity that he provided me you know angel actually you know so essentially to get back onto the like the the this building, it was on Bernard Street, and, and so this building, Dan Hoog, who's very good with uh, materials and building walls, as Dave was... A Jew who can build, like, a like Jew Jesus. A Jew who can build, exactly. He was very good with uh, power tools. And, uh, and uh, so, so Dan came to me and said, hey, we need another person. This space is massive. It was a, it was a Mahjong parlor, but it was also an old theater. And uh, it was a benevolent association. And so he's like, this guy, David Kordansky, is going to open a gallery. And Ivan Golinko. And Ivan Golinko. And I really think it's going to be a good one. People are talking about it. Let's get him in there. And we did the numbers and we crunched the numbers. And I, I wanted to open up a printing press. And so we did the numbers and we're like, you know, if we charge them $1,200 a month, we are going to live high in the hog. And uh, so we offered them the space. Uh, I think their space was 1,000 square feet, I believe. No, 1,500 square feet. No way. No? No way. It was maybe... Um, How big was it? 650 square feet, 700 square feet. Just the exhibition space, but then you had like an office space, no? It, it was really It was small. very minimal, but... For us, $1,200, we're paying our rent, we're getting a little extra space. Uh, so we built the space, Dave and Ivan moved in, uh, made a little shower for myself, um, and this is where Dave and I... Because you're living in this so gallery this is where space, right? Dave was unaware of my secret plans, um, and where Dave and I started to have problems, but I decided... Uh, I was going to live in this building rent-free and not really tell Dave my plans. Uh, so I lived in this, the kitchen aspect, uh, kitchen part of it, and I would shower across the common area. And I tried to do it early enough before Dave would come into work. However, I just want to chime in here. I think the there was the intention to shower early. Yes, and then there was the reality of the fact that uh, some of us were staying up until four in the morning. Right, there was lots partying. of partying. So yes. the the idea of getting of out cocaine. of bed uh, pre ten a.m. good cocaine too was near impossible. And so, long story short, we were paying twelve hundred bucks a month. <laughs> I was, you know, I was the guy who was painting his walls every week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Puttying the, you know, the, the space was seamless. It was. It was beautiful. You know, I, I took such good care of it. Um, and clients were, you know, all of a sudden coming to the gallery. And I will never forget, as long as I live, the first time I met Don and Mira Rubel. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're in the space. And lo and behold... Um, I see a shadowy figure <laughs> down the hallway who is in a bathrobe. <laughs> and for small miracles. Yeah. And uh, flip flops. I looked. Cl- I looked into the the darkness and saw Joel. And I, 
and he was getting ready to take a shower. I think <laughs> it was like two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. Uh huh. And um, I felt deep, deep <laughs> shame and uh, resentment for uh, being in this situation. And and I think that's a good uh, place to acknowledge, really, what was happening in Chinatown, that there was really these different forces happening. Old guard, new guard. Yes. Where I thought in my small, miniature, youthful brain of mine that I was somehow of this, like, other time, which was only maybe like a year previous, but like that I was somehow keeping it alive with like, if I just put enough cocaine in my nose and enough whiskey down my throat, that somehow I was like doing this more authentic thing. And here this other guy is from Cal Arts selling art and bringing in all these collectors who would come into the gallery. And, and I resented Dave for that. And so there was this like, strange battle and and then poor dan hoog who was somewhere in the middle mm. he liked his cigarettes and he liked his whiskey but he also took his art dealing very seriously and he worked with artists in a very serious manner and so i think he was somewhere in the middle and so i think again with like javier and there was this moment in chinatown where uh like parker jones was hired as the director uh, that there was a professionalism beginning. Yeah, even the even the the seemingly like quasi bohemian spaces like Black Dragon Society was all of a sudden professionalizing. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, something really kind of magical happened. Something something interesting happened where at the end, arguably at the end of Chinatown, when we I was getting ready to go to Culver City. For whatever reason, I think it was because I played music mm -hmm. and these guys didn't know I played music and we started hanging out together till very, very oh, know, yeah. late into the evening, early morning. Um, we would party and... We built a music studio above... Uh, Jorge part of studio and bar, the mountain bar. And so we would, sorry, Jorge, but you probably knew, we would steal lots of alcohol mm -hmm. from the bar and we would take it upstairs um, and we essentially would play music all night. Our great single, Ride the Dolphin. Mm -hmm. um, and we would play and anybody really who was around, we just had instruments. And if you were around, you would jump on. And if people were in town... Uh, I remember Thomas Zip. Yeah, uh, yeah, he would come and play drums, and whoever was around, Paul Giamatti, read uh, poetry while we would play music, and it was really like whoever was around, and we just jammed. We were like, and we really bonded. Yeah, yeah, really, bonded through music. Yeah. Interestingly enough, and so you became actual friends, and mm -hmm. not just sort of. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. and um, and I have to like I I you know I want to go on the record and just say this that. Um, you know, a friendship was absolutely built from that, from that moment. Yeah. Um, but the one thing that also, uh, led me to Joel, I think, and by the end of Chinatown is the fact that like for all of his Michigas and, and quote unquote unprofessionalism, 
um, he started making art. Mm. And what I realized about him was he was, in essence, always an artist. He was always an artist. He was always making things. I think even the gallery, you know, everyone says, oh, Joel's so performative. It's, you know, it's, is it serious? What is it? And, and I think ultimately it's, it's, it's always been artful. And I remember seeing his Jewish expressionist paintings and I remember going to his exhibition at Black Dragon yeah. Society and really like seeing him as an artist at that time was also something that like bridged us where he was like, oh wait, you know, this guy who's like seemingly all business in Chinatown actually is seeing me and recognizing me. Yeah, you were one of the few people that actually took my practice serious. I liked it. I you, really liked it. I was, liked the installation yeah. that you produced at Black Dragon Society. You, Bette Midler's husband, and Dean Valentine <laughs> were the only three people that actually engaged but with me. But that must me. have been very important to you because it was, you know, you're putting yourself out there. Oh my God. And for, for Dave to be one of the people who's like, oh, I get this. Now I see you as an artist. For this real. This puts the Mishugas into context in a way. Oh, yeah. No, it literally like made my, it made the whole thing. And it made me say like, I'm actually going to pursue this. Because at the time I was like, oh, I'm just doing this. And I, I, I called it like, oh, it's my retrospective. And I was like, I'll just do this and I'll be done with it. But I was like, maybe I, maybe I have a future. Like, maybe I could pursue this. It then took you a number of years to decide to, to fully pursue that, though. Yeah. But I, I think, in a way, though, the art world as, as a whole, right, as a, as a, kind, of, as a kind of umbrella, afforded, afforded, it, it, it afforded Joel a space in which mm. to, to hide out in. Yeah. You know? And... Um, and so whether he was performing as dealer or... Such an interesting way to think of it. And I never thought of it like that, but I was kind of like, I was staying in it, but yet hiding out in it and like loving it and getting to know the people in it. Incu you were incubating. I was incubating. Whoa. Yeah. Because it, it gave you space and time. I mean, you didn't, you know... Because I didn't really have anything to talk about before or much to say except like, oh, look at me, I'm a crazy drunk guy that's like, you know, but it, I needed time to like, you know, I needed time, I needed space yeah, for myself. Yeah, and the other, I mean, the other, the other factor is like the performative, I think has always been so, uh, so embedded with, within your art practice. And this this idea that somehow like well he was a gallerist and now he's an artist and this is somehow some some joke being played on the art world it's like i i don't know perhaps the joke is somehow all of us who were not realizing the performative aspect of what it means to be a gallerist you know mm -hmm. and 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 i think like there are, I don't know, there are no rules. That's why we all, f at least that's why I found my way into mm. this space. And, and, um, 
you don't have to like it, but to to say that somehow it's uh, the end is is ridiculous. No, it's just a continuation. Mm. Well, I think especially on the East Coast, there's a even within what seemed to be the radical space of our world, there's a puritanicalism in the fact that you need to do things a certain way, act a certain way, approach things a certain way, and anyone that destabilizes that, I think calls people's own choices into question and that makes them feel threatened and then they need to either lash out or somehow um, come to grips with that. Um, whereas on the West Coast, I mean, if I'm thinking of just, you know, like the two most obvious examples, people like Mike Kelly and, uh, and Paul McCartney, I mean, where fact and fiction, where real life and fantasy mm. are and exist is always a very permeable and movable line. And I think, I mean, not to shine you off too much, but like your practice and, and all of that was kind of insular, almost jokes kind of is part and parcel with that approach to art and life together. A- absolutely. Which you I mean, don't see I, on the, which I think I, is a very West Coast I, I, phenomenon. I was just about to say, the thing that I don't even think you realize is, is I would make the argument that Joel's practice is so steeped within that, that history of, of LA art, LA, you know, LA art making. And it's so much about place. Let me, let me kind of just like present something to you here. Like, why are so many LA artists fascinated with sight, fascinated with location, fascinated with the set, fascinated with space? You know, Bill Levitt producing sets, Mike Kelly rendering the substrata of CalArts, the basement of CalArts, like, uh, you know, Larry Johnson's Morgan Camera, King Alon, these are artists that are mapping the topographics. Every, every, every building on the Sunset Strip. Oh, Roche, Alex is real. You know, well, you yeah, know Alex. Alex. Yeah, Alex is, then is. I you know, mean, oh, wow. How many, yeah, you, you totally. know, and so, so there, there's, Whoa, I think good. LA artists yeah, yeah, yeah. are fascinated by Los Angeles. And they're fascinated with the Lauren, Lauren Halsey. Yeah. You know, there, there's a fascination with this slippage between what is fantastical and what is real, you know, as you said before, the simulacrum, uh, you know, this, this idea that, that, you know, magic and make, make believe is produced in our own backyard, backyard in Los Angeles. And, you know, Jack Goldstein using, using the technology of cinema and implementing that, like, there, you know, Paul using, you know, Hollywood uh, effects uh, to to render his sculptures. I mean, there there's a there's a real engagement with cultural production in LA by LA artists, and um, and I think that in a, in a sense, Joel and 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 the fact that that it all kind of weirdly starts with the the Beverly Hills Hotel as this kind of site for this trauma that took place in his life, serious trauma, you know, um, is a sort of beginning. And so like, I totally have always seen your work. I don't think you have even seen your work through Mm -hmm. this lens, but I've always seen your work through the lens of Los Angeles, like 110%. You were born there, you were raised there, your trauma took place yeah. there, and everything that you speak to is cited oh, within yeah. LA, in particular, you know, Beverly Hills. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I've always made an argument that stemming out of that and the, the interest in, in Los Angeles artists in the image-creating industries, I mean, that was a particular and is a particular time in American history where L.A. was the most American city in a way because it was all about the surface and how fantasy was created and projected, especially in the latter part of the 20th and thus far the early part of the 21st century. I mean, that was reality. And to, have, and to be an artist, you wanted to be engaging in that process and understanding it and deconstructing it. Whew. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot to it. But um, long, long story short, I, I think, you know, Chinatown came to an end. Yeah, I could almost, and I was going to say this too, because I think many people have their own Chinatown history. Mine ended at a very specific time, and I could almost pinpoint it. And it's like, I remember when Blum and Poe were about to take a lease. And they decided not to and actually took the uh, space in Culver City. And then there was a couple months where Dave got a lease in Culver City. Javier Perez got a lease in Culver City. And I remember this was the end. And I remember Dan and I having late night conversations where it was like, we must face the reality that this is done. And will we ever get $1,200 again for our rent? But that this was it, and it was time to move on. And I remember, like, I had my show at Black Dragon Society, and it was like, again, it was like, I've seen one death in Chinatown, and this is the next one. And Chinatown continued for other people, and I don't want to take those memories and that time away. But for me, this was this was an And Parker left Black Dragon Society. They closed. And... You know, Steve eventually left and China Art Objects. And so it was a different time and a different playground for different people. But when you guys left and that grouping, you know, this was, what, 2007, you know, this was the end of my Chinatown, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I, all my notes and memories and ephemera and my Chinatown little history ends there. It ends 0708 for me yeah. when we we took the space in in Culver City and uh, opened our first exhibition with Thomas House ago. So that's a whole uh, that was a whole different time. Just yeah, I mean, just to ground it in the specifics, like what were some of the things you were thinking about when you were like Chinatown for the gallery to continue to grow or for it to evolve? What were some of the key decision making factors that led you to decide to leave? It's a really great question. Um, I was starting to make money. And you're probably tired of my showering and well, no, at the, by the end, yeah, I accepted true. you for it. That's but, true. but, um, because I, you know, I knew I was leaving and, um, but no, um, I needed more space. I just needed, I needed more exhibition space. I was showing more sculpture. And, you know, as you know, I so desperately want to win for my artists. And that meant, you know, sticking my neck out and, and taking a risk on going from paying $1,200 a month to uh, $12,000 a month. Um, but it was... It was an exhilarating proposition. And the truth of the matter is, like, and I still kind of 
hold this this philosophy very 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 close to me which is if i go down i'm going to go down in a blaze you know and more will be revealed i think that's something all three of us have in common that philosophy um Dave, Joel, thanks so much for joining me. I hope I'll get one or both of you back. Certainly, Dave, to hear about this part two of the evolution of the gallery at some point in the next several months. But really, thank you for the time. I appreciate it. I love you both very much. Yeah, I love, love you too, you, Ben. ben. And, love and you, I love you, Joel. And just very quickly, I just want to, a few shout outs to, yeah, to those folks from Chinatown. Oh, yeah. Um, first and foremost, uh, let's see, Dan Hug. Dan Hug. Uh, love you, Dan. Um, someone who is very important to me who was always really kind, who was a kind of bridge was, um, John Plip, Polipchuk. Oh, John Polipchuk. Great fucking artist. Uh, AKA Rudy Bust. Rudy Bust. Uh, Steve Hansen. Steve Hansen. God bless your soul. Um, God, Ivan Golinko. Ivan. Um, Glenn Wong, who was, uh, the bartender at Hop Louie. Uh, Bill Nying, who came from Canada, who, Owned, who used to be at MGM Grand Las Vegas, who eventually owned Hop Louie, who passed away a couple years ago. Uh, who else? Mark McManus. I mean, RIP Hop Louie, one of the greatest bars oh, uh, I've ever been oh, in my life. God. Roger Herman. Oh, Roger. Hubert Schmalix. Schmalix. Um, Inmo. Uh, Inmo. Uh, everyone. Sister Gallery. Katie, Katie Brennan. Katie Brennan. Uh, Henry wow. Taylor. Oh, Henry Taylor. Um... I first met Henry Taylor as he was grilling steaks outside of, uh, of, uh, it was, it was next to the donut shop in the promenade. Well, Joel, you used to have in your gallery and then later your studios, this great picture that you guys would do an annual photograph yeah. of kind of the Chinatown yeah, scene. Yeah, who's in that picture, Joel? Oh my God. Uh, let's, let's go down that list. Oh my God. Francis Stark, Steve Hansen, Arlo Stark. Uh, and you actually watch Arlo get older. Um, as the years go by, you, of course, Dave, Tiff Siegfrieds, Henry Taylor, Shirley Morales. Hi, Shirley. She's a listener, I'm sure. Uh, Roger Herman. Who else was there? Aaron. Oh, Aaron Turner. Yeah. Who was our bandmate. Yeah. Um, where, uh, Charles Irvin. Charles Irvin. He's um, a Buddhist now. Uh, the artist that opened hey, your gallery, uh, uh, Phil. Phil, Phil Wagner. Wagner. Oh, Phil um, Wagner. Who makes the best stretcher, stretcher bars. bars in the world, I think. Yes. In the world, I think. Yeah. Ali Stretch. Um, God, there's so many. Mario Carrera. There's a lot of, uh, lot of, lot of time there and a lot of, uh. And Mr. Banjo, Tony Fernandez. Yeah. I, I don't I don't say this lightly. It was like an important cultural time in American art history, which yeah. is crazy to think about because um, you guys lived it. It certainly was an aggregate of youthful energy that for sure catalyzed what is now the LA art world. Certainly part of that. Mm-hmm. There was there was Blum and Poe. There was Mark Fox, Richard Tayus, Margot Levin, um, Sean Regan, um, 
you know, Larry Gagosian, Patrick Painter, Patrick, Patrick Painter, Painter. Ros- Rosamund Felsen, uh, anyone who I'm forgetting, I apologize. But point point being, um, Chinatown was was truly fueled on the young idea. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Ooh.